0: Hey, and welcome to Bread. We're an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in Los Angeles. This talk is from a current series on the book of Revelation that we've titled The End of Fear. We hope it serves you well. Amen. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Would you like to have a seat? It's great to have you with us. My name's Ed. For those of you who don't know me, I know that there's um, some people here for the first or second time. It's great to have you with us. Uh you're welcome, uh, you're welcome to kind of check us out for as long as you like. You're here, as we always say, on your own terms. Uh, but um, life's a bit rough, isn't it, at the moment, with everything going on. Um, and so I just recommend, um, despite the difficulties in wearing masks and doing church and not, you know, being able to necessarily hug each other or wrestle each other to the ground, as we're called to do. Uh, that, um, that Just being with people, being able to worship together, being able to come together, it's so important. Uh, and so we always say church is a bit like a breakfast cereal. Some people like Cheerios, some people like Weetabix. You just pick one that you like. So find a church um, and commit to it and be with people, uh, because it will do you and them and the world the world of good here ends that little thing. Come for lunch afterwards. It'll be great. Nice to see you there. Um, We are beginning a series on, uh, if not the, then at least one of the most controversial books of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Isn't that exciting? This is self-inflicted. We chose to do this. Um, Nietzsche said that Revelation was the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. And Martin Luther questioned whether it should ever have made it into the Bible, saying, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. And George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright and famous atheist, said that Revelation was the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. And to be fair, on first reading, There is a touch of the, I am the Eggman, we are the Eggmen, I am the walrus, goo 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 So, that was, (laughs) that's a reference to a Beatles song, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, Just so you know, that's not the only dad music reference you're gonna get in this talk. So wait, there's another one. I've lost my talk. It's just gone completely black. It's the Holy Spirit. Look, it's just gone. Bear with me. It's back. So yes, people have, and lots of Christians sort of sympathizing with these positions, have given Revelation quite a wide berth, rarely, if ever, reading it or talking about it. In fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it doesn't feature at all in their lectionary, in their daily readings. But on the other hand, some people have done the exact opposite. They have raised this curious book above all other parts of Scripture and become myopically obsessed with it. Forget the Gospels, those lives of Jesus. Forget Paul. What's really important is revelation. Or, more accurately, a particular and maybe not very robust, bearing the weight of much scrutiny type of interpretation of Revelation. For these people, what really matters are things like raptures and antichrists and marks of the beast. And often they believe that Revelation should be treated like some sort of coded eschatological puzzle, which it is up to us to try and decipher, and when we do, we will give, it will give us our, our sort of theological Hercule Poirot's, the keys to understanding what to expect and when to expect it when the world is plunged into a fiery end of game judgment. So forget Jesus' call to love our neighbors, forget the world-changing significance of his death and resurrection. What's really, really important is whether the locust swarm in chapter 9 is a prediction of attack helicopters wiping out communist infidels. Spoiler alert, it's not. Not that long ago, um, in 1993, that's actually a very long time ago, a, um, a bunch of fanatical kind of revelation obsessives in a place called Waco in Texas, led by a man called David Koresh, uh, who believed he was, in fact, the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah. They believed that he would lead them against, in a sort of violent conflict against the forces of Babylon, which they believed was the U.S. government, and the result was actually a terrible siege um, on their compound by the FBI, and countless lives were needlessly lost. A New Testament scholar going, delighting in the name, M. Eugene Boring, said that no other part of the Bible has provided such a happy hunting ground for all sorts of bizarre and dangerous interpretations, and M. Eugene Boring is right. And whilst there's a sort of element of dark humor to all of this, it's actually very serious. And this is why I want us to be aggressive in our dismissal of the quackery. I've talked to enough people, many of them in this room, who may have not been exposed to the most extreme versions of this sort of teaching, but nevertheless have grown up petrified. Petrified of a rapture, petrified of an antichrist, petrified of a violent judgment of God, but most devastatingly petrified of God himself or Jesus or both. This is serious and it will not do. The central message of the New Testament is that God really, really loves you. Anything which gets in the way of that, like the wolf of Jesus' parable, will steal and kill and destroy the life-giving spirit of God from you. Which is why we all need to rediscover, or perhaps discover for the first time, what this book actually is, and maybe more importantly, what this book most certainly isn't. Because, after all, in this book, on the positive side of things, there are extraordinary expressions of worship and praise. There are extraordinary depictions of how wonderful and glorious and other And beautiful, the God is whom we serve. We just sang, actually, something directly taken from Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy is his name. This is the refrain over and over again, because Jesus is glorious and majestic and worthy of our worship. And this is the beating heart of Revelation. A couple of quick asides. The term Antichrist doesn't feature in the book of Revelation once, or twice, or a million, it doesn't feature. So this is the only time we're going to mention it. It's only in the Bible, in the epistles of John, there are about five references to it. And it's clear there that John, a different John to the John who wrote Revelation, talks not just about one Antichrist, but many Antichrists. And he identifies them both as being present during his lifetime and in the future to come. Because, most importantly, what John means by antichrist is anyone, anyone at all, anyone at all who simply doesn't acknowledge Jesus. Let me quote just one of a few examples, 1 John 1, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. They are antichrist. It's no more complicated or scary or blood-curdling than that. So it would be very helpful for any of us who have been given this idea that an Antichrist is this sort of um, demonic, fiery, horrible, Barack Obama-type figure. That's a joke. (laughs) Or whoever else it might have been. It would be good to shove that idea in the garbage where it belongs. Let us instead be people of the Bible, It is there for us to read ourselves and shirk the sub-theological musings of oddballs. The Antichrist doesn't feature in Revelation and neither does the rapture. For those of you who aren't familiar, this is the idea that before the world ends, all the good Christians will be swept up into the heavens and the not so good people, including all the Catholics for some reason. (laughs) Poor old Catholics they will spend a millennium in tribulation here on earth. The rapture doesn't feature in Revelation, and in fact, the rapture also doesn't feature in the rest of the Bible. The rapture actually first came to prominence 2,000 years pretty much after the birth of Christianity. Before then, not talked about, not discussed, not even thought about at all because it wasn't there in the Bible only relatively recently then, and basically based on a misreading of three verses in Thessalonians, has a whole intricate picture of this non-biblical idea been constructed. And off the back of it, millions of books and TV series and films have been made, making the people who've made them millions and millions of dollars. The reason this non-biblical idea took hold and gained such prominence is in very basic terms, because towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, and by the way, it's sort of exclusively an American evangelical thing. It doesn't really exist elsewhere. But people were leaving the church in their droves. And pastors and preachers realized that a hugely effective motivator for people is fear. In fact, when people are afraid, they will believe and do and say almost anything. And so, here is an idea that makes people very scared, and people stopped leaving church. Jesus could have motivated all of us by fear. As we shall see in our readings of Revelation, he is fearsomely powerful. So it is well within his wheelhouse to motivate people by fear because he is the all-powerful God. Instead, Jesus motivates the whole world by selfless, unconditional love that dies on a cross because that is actually who Jesus is. So let's say it again. Let us be people of the Bible. It's there for all of us to read and shirk the sub-theological musings of oddballs. Introduction over. Let us see what Revelation actually is and what it isn't and begin at the beginning. This is chapter 1, verse 1. to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come The Almighty. There's a famous quote from Mark Twain. It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. It would be helpful for us to sit with that. Part of the beauty of the Bible is its richness. It would take a lifetime for us to even scrape the surface of all that's going on there. However, It is also, on another level, an extremely simple book. At one point, Jesus can boil down the whole of the Old Testament and the prophets into two succinct sentences Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is there anything more simple, yet bothersomely challenging, as that? If we just spent the rest of our lives doing that, I think we would have more than enough on our hands. So particularly as we look at Revelation, let's not miss the wood for the trees. There are some parts that we may never understand, and that's okay. Let's let the bits we do permeate our hearts as the Spirit speaks to us, and let's let those bits change us because those bits will give us more than enough of wrestle and challenge and beauty and redemption. So as we begin in this sort of introductory talk, here's some relatively easy things to understand. Verse one, this is a revelation. The actual word used is apocalypse. But apocalypse doesn't mean what it has sort of come to mean and never actually was supposed to mean in our world now, which is sort of tsunamis and wars and flowing molten lava and that sort of stuff. Actually, an apocalypse is a style of writing. And it's a style of writing which is revelatory in nature. In fact, apocalypse writing was very popular in the centuries before and after Jesus in both the Jewish and Christian worlds. In an apocalypse, God reveals to a human being something of the heavenly realm, and particularly how heaven and earth now and in the future will interact. You see, for the Jewish mindset, this was always the expectation that heaven would come and invade this broken world and redeem it. And in the temple, in the Holy of Holies in the temple, this is where heaven and earth collided. Now, for us as Christians, the early Christians, they realized that the Holy of Holies had been superseded by the body of Jesus. Jesus. That in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this is where heaven and earth have collided. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which Jesus goes on and on and on about, is here, right now. It is colliding with this earth. It is redeeming this earth, and it has begun because of Jesus. So John's revelation is about this present and ongoing reality. It is a sort of peeling back of the curtain to reveal in dramatic, kind of fantastical imagery, this heaven and earth collision. And the scenes are, of course, conveyed poetically. Now poetry is obviously more open to interpretation than non-poetic writing, but just because something's meaning is not immediately clear doesn't mean its meaning must become clear, because poetry is, by its very nature, artistic in license, and here, is where I'm going to give you my second dad music reference. Very exciting, isn't it? As you will know, the greatest piece of music ever written is Paranoid Android by Radiohead. It's not just my opinion, that is fact. When I consider that piece of music, I can think about how the notes, uh, how long they last, how loudly they're played, how they interact with other things. But ultimately, to do that is to miss the real point, which that piece of music, the greatest piece of music ever made, takes me on a journey. It sparks my imagination. It makes me feel things, because this is what art does. If you think about your favorite novel, if you think about your favorite piece of art, if you think about your favorite piece of music, which is not the greatest piece of music, it's just your favorite, this is what it does it sparks our imagination, it makes us feel. So as we read Revelation, let it be fantastical, without caring too much about the logical details. It is far more interested in our emotions and our imagination than it is in our intellect and our rationale. And if we do this, it will be much more fun. We can just relax a little bit. And after all, this is how it was intended to be heard. But more importantly, in so doing, we can best experience the purpose of Revelation. It is written to both express and create hope. It is scathing in its critique of those who would oppress God's people. And it is unfailing in its confidence that God will deliver them, that Jesus has won. Ultimately, it functions as encouragement. Even if things look terrible, and they really did look terrible for Christians at the time even if they look terrible on the surface, even if they are terrible on the surface, behind the scenes in the drama of heaven invading earth, Jesus, the lamb who was slain but is risen and victorious, is defending and caring and winning for his beloved creation. He is wiping out evil. And ultimately, he will be entirely victorious. The world we are currently living in and the country we are currently living in is, a mo- is an emotional roller coaster, isn't it, right now? It's of flux and of uncertainty and difficulty. And I understand if people have gone, oh, I think I've been doing fine, I've been doing fine, I've been doing fine, and then suddenly I'm really not doing fine anymore, because it catches up with us. Hannah, my wife, was very selfishly sick all week. She does this at times, uh, just to smite me. Um, And I'm quite good if my world is very well ordered around all the things that I want to do, but if something comes out of left field that I wasn't expecting, I get a little bit anxious. And because Hannah was so selfish and sick, I had to look after children and do jobs and all those sorts of things. This is a joke, by the way. She just gave a withering sigh, if you didn't hear that. But suddenly I'm going, I, don't, I actually don't know if I can do this anymore. I really don't know if I can do this anymore. Because everything is suddenly catching up with me. And so if that's you, totally understand it's completely normal. The point of this book is to tell you that actually things were forever thus. The world is broken. It's not working as it should. We're in a particular difficult time but probably historically actually not that difficult but still difficult and God says to us it's going to be okay and for many people they need Jesus to say that to them and to be that for them right now. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the star. There is This is a Revelation verse 1 from Jesus Christ and verse 2 about Jesus Christ. It is a continuation of the witness of Jesus. The same Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee, who befriended sinners, who healed the sick. The same Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. The same one who took on flesh and died for the sake of the world he loved. The same Jesus who rose victorious, poured out his spirit on all flesh. This is a point we're going to come back to. Thirdly, Revelation is also a letter, verse four. Within it, there are actually seven letters written to seven different churches. These are the churches in Asia, closest to the island of Patmos, where John, who wrote it, has been exiled, and presumably he was the pastor of some or all of these churches, and he is writing to encourage them. That there are seven churches is significant. Uh, One, it's because there actually were seven churches, but also in biblical understanding it's a sort of number of completion. And the point is, this is a letter written to those seven churches at that particular time for them and their circumstances, but also it is written to all churches for all time because we can identify with some of the things going on in those churches. And it is to us. It is not to the godless or the Babylonians or whoever. It is to the church because it is there as a piece of prophecy, verse 3. It is sent to tell us what God wants to say to us timelessly. You see, prophecy, in a biblical sense, is not about divination or, foretell- uh, or foretelling. It's not about uh, knowing the future, per se. Actually, um, uh, divination and um, fortune telling are forbidden in Old Testament law because God is the one who knows all the details of the future, not us. Prophecy, in a biblical sense, is forthtelling as opposed to foretelling. It's about saying what God wants to say to people now. If you consider John the Baptist, famous prophet of Jesus' time, he proclaims to the people of God, repent because the Messiah is coming. Now would be a good time to get on board with the Messiah coming. Repent, come back to God because the Messiah is coming. However, when the Messiah Jesus turns up, John the Baptist is not actually completely sure whether this is the person that he's been announcing because prophecy is not as concerned with the details of the future as the message to the present. Therefore, repent, he says, because the Messiah is coming. He becomes convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not the point. Do you get it? So prophecy is about saying to us what God needs us to know right now. And as such, it involves elements of encouragement, of hope, but also of gracious rebuke. These are the ways you're going wrong. Don't do it anymore. Let's read a little bit more. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Almost certainly he's been exiled there by uh, the ruling powers because they don't like him. Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands,
1: and among the lampstands
0: was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. As I mentioned earlier, ultimately this is a book about Jesus. Jesus in all his glory and majesty And so to end, I want to concentrate on a couple of sentences. Verse 16. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Here, if we can have it, is a picture of some people looking at the sun. Actually, this is a picture of some people looking at a partial eclipse of the sun. And the one person who isn't wearing dark glasses or averting his eyes uh, doesn't do that for very long. He has to turn away because even a partial eclipse of the sun, if you to look at it directly for too long, the sun is so powerful that it will burn out the back of your retinas. And it has the power to leave you blind forever. When John sees Jesus in his vision... Christ's eyes are like blazing fire and his face was like the sun shining not as a partial eclipse but in all its brilliance. We have domesticated Jesus. We've made him cuddly and nice and of course he is. He holds us in his arms because he loves us. He leaves the 99 to find us who have gone astray. And he brings us back to him because he's the good shepherd who wants no harm to come to the most precious of his creation, humankind. But we've domesticated him because he's also wild and dangerous. He's intense and extreme. He's the king of heaven. He shines like a blinding white light. His radiance fills the heavens and earth. And he is awesome in the truest sense of the world. He demands awe in his magnitude. So I want to ask you, how big is your vision of Jesus? It may be that you're going to need a bigger Jesus. John's vision of the real Jesus is so big that he says, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell as though dead. Here is a video of someone who's so scared that they faint as though dead. Watch the middle guy. And there he goes. Thank you very much. How big is your vision of Jesus? Vasovagal syncope is the technical term for that sort of fainting. When we see or experience something extreme, like the risen Jesus, shining with all the brilliance of the sun, or simply a slingshot roller coaster, the emotion centers in our brain are activated and then a signal is sent to the brain stem which connects the brain to the spinal cord and when those connections happen you get a message telling your blood vessels to dilate and your heart to beat much more slowly. If all this happens too quickly because the emotional response has been so intense you faint you fall down as if you're dead like that poor guy I did enjoy the other two really having fun at his expense. Fainting like this is actually so extreme that our primary survival instincts, the survival instincts that have kept us alive for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the instinct that we have to fight or to flight, these are overridden and instead we just faint. This is the enormity of the vision of the risen Jesus. Our bodies literally cannot take it. So how big is your vision of the king? We've domesticated Jesus, but he will not be held back. I want to suggest that there's some very good news here. Because the bigger and the more powerful, the co- closer to the heavenly blazing sun of a Jesus we actually see him to be, the more we might actually take seriously what he has come to do in our lives. The more he will have the power to heal the sick. The more he will have the power to raise the dead. The more he will have the power to change this beautiful but desperately unjust, unfair, broken world into a glorious heavenly kingdom. The more powerful he is, the more able he is to keep you safe, to hold you, to take all your fear and anxiety and to replace it with his unconditional, uncompromising love. Because this is the God in whose presence people cannot stand. This is the God in whose presence people fall to the floor, though dead. Such is his power. Such is his majesty. Verse 17, my favorite bit of the whole thing. Then he placed his right hand on me, and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I'm alive forever and ever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus is fearsome in his power, but the very first thing that he says in this whole book is the most often repeated command in the whole of the Bible, which is this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because Jesus has won. Jesus has done it all and he loves you and he's there for you and he places his hand on your right shoulder and says, don't be afraid. It's gonna be okay. Everything is going to be okay. I know that there are lots of things to be anxious about right now. We have a friend whose um, parents have contracted COVID. They're unvaccinated. She's worried about them. I know people who are dealing with just the worst um, professional situations where everything seems lost. I know people who have lost loved ones because of suicide, which is just rampant at the moment, particularly in young men. There are lots of things to be anxious about. This letter was written at a time where persecution amongst Christians was at its height where everyone was thinking Jesus is going to return any moment, and yet we're getting slaughtered. What are we going to do? And this letter is written to say there is hope, there is encouragement, that Jesus is winning, has won, and will win. And we can be safe with him. But let us not domesticate him. Let us not hold him in our own ideas of how big or powerful he is. Let him be who he actually is so that he can keep us safe, so that he can be the God he actually is, do the things that he actually wants to do, which is redeem the whole of humanity. There's so much evil around. There's so much horrible stuff in this world. We need him to fill us, to be our God, so that we can stand. And that's what he chooses to do. That's what he wants to do, if we let him.